the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, Aubrey went to the movies last night. Then we're joined by Phil Johnson, Executive Director of Grace to You. And did you see that explosive leaked letter from Russell Moore? We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. It is like getting mm-hmm. hot out now. Now it's summer is summer's here now. Now it's summer. That's right. Summer is here. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. Aubrey, there's two things I wanted to talk to you about as we start here, both of okay. them very much in your life. So we're going to start by just uh, we're going to talk about Aubrey's life here at the beginning. Oh, this is fun. I didn't know we were You're doing like, this. Oh, it's, right. about me. <laughs> it's about me. Okay. I love today's show. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> it's the best show we've ever done that's why have we not done this more here's the first question we 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 built it up we talked about it we did a top five list towards it all of this stuff aubrey and her husband went to the movies last night we went to the movies and it was like you were looking forward to this like most people look forward to vacation yeah i was so yesterday we spent time talking about me going to the cubs game and kind of how fun it was uh, you went to the movies for the first time in a long time. This is a huge part yeah. of your marriage relationship. When the when the theaters yep. closed, we didn't know if you and Kevin would make it, but you made it. We didn't it. know if we would make it. <laughs> so not only what did you see, but I want to know the full Aubrey experience at the theater last night. Yeah. Uh, well, let's Oh, how to even begin this exciting story. I mean, if you go on my Instagram page at Upstamp, I literally took pictures of us <laughs> at the movies. I was so ridiculous. But one thing that people need to know, too, is during the pandemic, Kevin and I actually took a uh, our iPad. I'm trying to think of how this worked. We went to the movie theater parking lot. We parked in the movie theater parking lot and watched a movie in our car. I'm not even joking. Like, that's how that's we got takeout from the Thai food place. We ate and we watched a movie uh, in our car. That is, that's just odd, but we'll continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how much we miss the movies. Okay. Or is it romantic and cute? Okay. So we went to dinner. We got our tickets online. We got there. We went to see The Quiet Place 2, which mm. um, was thrilling and a little bit scary. I don't know that that was the best movie to like re-enter into, but it was a fun one. Um, and it was packed. So I was shocked, one, that we there were barely any seats left when we went to make our reservations, because I just sort of thought no one's going to the movies. But it was packed, and it was so fun. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but even going to the bathroom in the movie theater, I'm like, oh, here's my, this is my stall that I go to. Like, I was like really nostalgic, the whole thing. I was so nostalgic. Okay, I want to walk through this. In. That's, wait, yeah, time out. Yeah, we, time yeah. out. Back up. Rewind the tape. We're yep, going to not go yep. all the way back to the bathroom stuff, but we okay. snuck food in. I need to hear this. this is, we're about to turn this into a jerk or justified segment here. <laughs> 
Well, I told Kevin, Brian Fromm told me that we could sneak food into the theater, Pastor Brian Fromm. And so we went to... <laughs> Not my fault. Randomly, we went to TJ Maxx because there aren't a lot of just like quick mart places, you know, right around the theater. So we got some of their aisle candy, shoved it in my purse, took it in. We, uh, yeah, we sat down. It was packed. They, now they do have at the theater... Um, seats around every sort of section of seats that are like the social distance seats. So in one sense, it's kind of nice because you don't have to sit by anybody (laughs) and we ate our food and we watched our movie and people cheered at the end and it just felt normal. Like what you were saying at the Cubs game, it just felt normal. You almost kind of went, oh, this is nothing happened. I don't know. It it was very bizarre. Like it was sort of surreal just going. We haven't been through this horrible thing in the last year and a half. This is just normal. So I did I did pause every once in a while. I almost had to have an out-of-body experience like, I'm at the movie theaters again. The last movie Kevin and I saw was the remake of Emma. I mean, literally, this was like January or February in 2020. 2020. That yes. was the last time we were at the theater besides sitting outside in the parking lot. But so, but it felt like almost no time had passed and it felt like no experience had happened that was like life altering. <laughs> it, it was just paused and now you hit play <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, A, I will not be blamed for you sneaking food into the movie it, No, it is your influence. It's your fault, Brian. You yeah, will be blamed. Something tells me if, we had, <laughs> if I had shared that with you that you and your husband would have stashed food into your purse. No, we were totally holy until you came into our lives. I picture you going full nachos in your big purse just reaching. I have I have snuck churros into the movie theater before. Awesome. <laughs> I got uh, as you mentioned, we're on. Uh, we could see each other. So as I mentioned, I uh, got my hair cut last night in yes, downtown yes. Downers Grove. Looking and sharp. It, it was just a Wednesday night. Beautiful out. One of the best things that's now happened out of the pandemic is all the restaurants have outdoor seating now. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. It w- it was like festival nature of like crowded in Downers <laughs> Grove. It, really? it was so fun. There's live yeah. music going on at restaurants, oh. and I was like, "We are back!" Like yeah. this is fun. So anyway, we want we want to highlight. I know we're not everyone's back, and it's still yeah. w- whatever. But certainly, it is just fun. All right, number two from your okay. life, and I didn't okay. plan on talking about this till oh. I perused your social media accounts this morning. Uh, you had a major kind of announcement yesterday with your new book coming out. And I was like, that's really big. A, why did she not re- not reveal this on the radio oh. show? But B, uh, tell us about it. So this felt kind of big. So I wanted to let you talk about it a little bit. Well, Brian, thanks. I didn't know we we're going to talk about this. So are, you're talking mm-hmm. about the book cover reveal, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I am. Just making yes, sure. Yes. So I officially you have, have multiple big things going on on your social media. <laughs> right. I mean, could it be? The, could it be the movie? It's going to be the book cover. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I officially, all over my social media, I revealed my book cover, which was uh, designed by this wonderful artist at Tyndale named Ava Winters. She did my last book cover, but it's beautiful. The book title is "Known: How Believing Who God Says You Are Changes Everything." It has a foreword by Christine Kane, so that's at the bottom. And then there's a quote by Mark Batterson at the top who really generously endorsed it. I have incredible endorsers around this book. People have been so generous with it. And um, yeah, so the book covers out and I love it. It's gorgeous. So go That's look awesome. at it and pre-order the book. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Just look at the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it raises two questions. One, the first one's the most important one. The second one may be the more serious one. Okay. Uh, a, uh, 
I felt like there was an endorsement missing from your co-host. <laughs> so endorsements were due before I started the show, if that makes you feel All right, better. So next book. Okay. So what you're saying is that your next book comes along. <laughs> yeah, Brian's name is on the cover. I will I will make a little reveal for you, though, that your name Please. and Debbie's name are in the acknowledgments. Yes, so I you will made buy it. it. Now. You made it. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants me to autograph the acknowledgments, I will be glad to do so. Uh, but with like a minute or two we have left, I do want people to know what's the book about. Yes. And uh, when does it come out? Uh, you said they can pre-order, but uh, I do think it, it sounds like a wonderful book. So why don't you just share a little bit about the book here? Yep. Thanks for that. Uh, the book is really about the names that God has for his children. So we're living in a day and age when all kinds of things are trying to name us and shape our identity. And what this book is, is stepping back, looking at scripture. It's actually every scripture that talks about the image of God. And what I do is pull a name. Name that God has for his children, names like beloved, names like whole, names like daughter or son, and just really reflect both personally and theologically on what that actually means, how that actually changes mm. our lives. And then ultimately what we build up to is the name of Jesus and how his name changes everything. And so for anyone, I think, who's struggled in their lives with names that someone has spoken over them or they've spoken over themselves that they live with that aren't freeing or good or healthy. Um, it's kind of a healing book in that way. And then it's really, and it's for men and women. It's for both. Um, but I am really, really excited about it. It comes out September awesome. 7th. You can pre-order now. My book launch team will open up in July. We'd love to have you join me. Uh, it's going to be a fun experience. Awesome. And so I'm sure Amazon, all the other places you can get your book. Yeah. We're excited. It'll be fun Thanks, when your book comes Brian. out. And I'm excited, too. We'll have, we'll, it, we are looking forward to that. So go ahead and pre-order Aubrey's book, if for nothing else, than the acknowledgments. That's Apparently, right. That's why Ryan's I'm going to pre-order the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not narcissistic at all or anything, but, you know, there you go. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by the executive director of Grace to You Ministry, uh, that being Phil Johnson. You can hear Grace to You with John MacArthur here every weekday at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160. And we're excited to be joined next by Phil Johnson, Grace to You's executive director. We're going to talk to Phil next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today, and we're excited to be joined by Phil Johnson. Phil is the executive director of Grace to You, which is a ministry that's all about God's truth. Uh, that's been up since 1969. Uh, Phil is an elder and a pastor at Grace Community Church. And as a reminder, you can hear Grace to You with John MacArthur weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So again, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Now, you've been involved with Grace to You since 1981. I would just love to know about your time with the ministry. How has the ministry grown? How has it changed over the years? Yeah, thank you. Actually, I came on staff here in 1983. I've been working with John MacArthur since 1981, mm -hmm. and the way that happened is I was a, an editor, a manuscript editor and acquisitions editor at Moody Press mm -hmm. uh, when they started publishing John MacArthur's books, and mm -hmm. uh, I began to listen to him on the radio uh, almost from the beginning uh, of the earliest days of Grace to You. I probably was one of the first 10 or 12 people on the mailing list. Oh, wow. And uh, I love John's teaching, and uh, I used to hear him and think, 
he should be writing books. And uh, <laughs> uh, then Moody Press called me and said, we want to start this uh, series with John MacArthur and wonder if you'd be interested in being one of the editors. And so that's how I got connected with him. Uh, edited one of his books uh, starting in 1981. When I finished that, uh, he said to me one day just out of the blue, you should quit your job at Moody Press and come to work for me. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, okay. That was January 25th of 1983. By March 1st, I was here in California on staff and have been here ever since. Wow, wow. that's great. Phil, are there any stories you can share for our listeners about how someone has been impacted by the Grace to you radio and television programs? Yeah, so many of them, actually. Uh, but a couple that stand out in my mind. Uh, we got a long testimony a few years ago from a guy in Florida who said he was driving and randomly turned on the radio and, uh, and tuned into John MacArthur, who was teaching on the deity of Christ. And this guy was actually the third generation of some very influential leaders in the Jehovah's Witness movement. Hmm. Oh, wow. Where, you know, of course, they deny the deity of Christ. And he said what John was teaching uh, irritated him so much that he switched the radio off. But after about 20 seconds, he thought, uh, I, I want to hear what this guy's saying. So he turned it back on, and he turned it off again, turned it back on. By the end of the broadcast, he was converted. Wow. And, uh, pretty amazing story. Uh, uh, changed his life and his ministry. We kept in touch with him for several years. Uh, wow. And then another one that stands out in my mind was my very first trip overseas. One of the places I went was to Singapore, where uh, I met a man who was at the time going into Burma. Now it's Myanmar, but it was Burma. He was uh, training village pastors and uh, he said some of them had somehow acquired uh, recordings of the Grace to You broadcast and hmm. John MacArthur's teaching, and uh, that it was the best resource they had, that some of them were would just listen to John MacArthur, translate it into their language, and what he was teaching on the radio is what they would preach to their congregations on the weekend. Wow. Uh, and I just thought... It's amazing how modern media has allowed us to get the message out in ways that we don't even plan or or know about sometimes. Yeah. And I think heaven's going to be full of stories like that, that we had no clue these things were happening. Absolutely. Again, uh, you can hear Grace to You with John MacArthur weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. There's also a special offer for a free booklet from John MacArthur. It's called How to Study Your Bible. In How to Study Your Bible, uh, John MacArthur gives you practical tips for how to understand, interpret, and apply the life-transforming truth of Scripture. So you can request your free copy of the booklet, uh, How to Study Your Bible, at gty.org. That's G-T-Y, Grace to you, gty.org. And so, Phil, th there's so much history to the ministry, but I'm wondering uh, the future, right? Our world is changing, uh, you know, media is changing, everything's changing. What excite? Well, what is the future that you see for Grace to you, and what excites you about the future of the ministry? Well, we intend to keep doing what we're doing uh, indefinitely. I mean, f forever. I, I think media, the medium changes, and different media come along that uh, 20 years ago I would not have anticipated that you'd be able to uh, listen to any John MacArthur sermon you wanted to on your phone <laughs> yes. in any place you are, you know. I, we, we could not have anticipated that. Although I remember a meeting in 1995 when I told John MacArthur, 
I think the day is coming when we won't be producing cassette tapes. People will be downloading your messages from the Internet. The Internet was new to me at the time, but I, I sort of saw a hint of what might come. And he stopped me at that point and said, oh, don't say that. Cassette tapes are the backbone of our ministry. <laughs> I think even something better is coming along. And it has. We actually have two million sermons downloaded every month. Uh, That's wow. great. Which is just mind-boggling. That's amazing. Phil, Brian and I are both pastors, and so we like to ask ministry folks this question. Are you hopeful for the future of the church? I am. I see lots of problems, but, uh, that you know, you read the Old Testament and you see the same thing. Lots of apostasy, lots of uh, unfaithful people, and yet uh, when we're unfaithful, Scripture says God remains faithful. And he preserves his word and the gospel through a remnant. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, a, a real vibrant belief in the truth of Scripture, I don't think that's ever been a majority opinion, and uh, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon. But I know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and I believe that with all my heart. So it's impossible to be utterly pessimistic. I I am sometimes critical, but never pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, as we let you go here, thinking about the ministry, John MacArthur's been at this for a long time. Uh, why do you think his teaching? You talked about the number of downloads in a month. What, why do you think uh, his teaching resonates? Why, you know, uh, again, like I said, he's been doing this for a while. What, what still resonates about his teaching style and will probably continue to resonate? Yeah, easy question. It's because he's anchored to Scripture. He's just teaching Scripture. He's not exegeting movies or, or building his sermons on the latest popular song. Uh, he's just opening the Bible and explaining what it means. And there's a timelessness to that that will endure beyond all of us. I, I honestly believe that uh, if the Lord doesn't return first, a hundred years from now, people are going to be listening to John MacArthur sermons. We still read Spurgeon for the same yeah, reason, yeah. because Spurgeon was so thoroughly biblical. His sermons are timeless. And uh, I, I think preachers who try to exegete contemporary events or or contextualize everything for the current culture, uh, they, they actually cut off the potential of their preaching because right. the, the gospel is not aimed at just one time zone or, or one zip code. Yep, yep, that's really well put. Again, Phil Johnson is the executive director of Grace to You. Uh, you can hear Grace to You with John MacArthur weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, right here on AM 1160. You can also a special offer for a free booklet from John MacArthur called How to Study Your Bible. So go to gty.org. That's gty.org. Phil, before we let you go, if people want to follow you on social media or read anything, where can people connect with you? Probably the easiest thing is to Google my name. And, um, I'm the first Phil Johnson that comes up. Uh, and you can connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, or my website, which is Romans45.org. Excellent. Phil Johnson, again, Executive Director of Grace You. Phil, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. 
We like to describe uh, part of our show here is taking what blows up on Christian Twitter, if you will. I'm kind of. Yes. Yes. And and what is it? What are like the stories of the day? And then we kind of go, all right, let's react. And there was a story yesterday and today. Yeah, there was. That lit fire to Christian Twitter. And that is the story of Russell Moore. So a little bit of background. Russell Moore, one of the most prominent I would say voices in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, not just mm-hmm. in their churches, but he has been until recently. He has led the ERLC, which is the Ethics uh, and Religious Liter- Liter- uh, Religious Liberty Commission, I believe. I think I got that right. Uh, the arm, kind of the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Russell Moore tends to be uh, he has spoken out very much against former President Trump about uh, some of the kind of the factions he sees, not just in Christendom, but in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, you know, you got to remember the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest denomination in Protestantism. Like it is. That's why we have to talk about it. And there. Wow. I don't think I knew that. Is, Is it still the largest denomination in Protestantism? I think I'm right. Wow, someone could double check wow. me on that. I'm, I'm. That's wow. one of those. But it's obviously very large. That's very, one of yeah. those. Yeah. I'm 95, 96 yeah. percent sure. How's that sound? So, yeah. Uh, recently, Russell Moore stepped down from his position as president of the ERLC. He now is moving into a role at Christianity Today. Also, recently, uh, so more on the personal end, he. Uh, begin, he took a minister in residence position at a large church in Nashville, Emmanuel uh, of Nashville. I think it's called something like that, which is an Acts 29 church. It is not a Southern okay. Baptist Convention church. So kind of on a wow. personal end, Russell Moore has stepped away from the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, so that's a huge deal. And I've cards on the table I've shared before. I kind of tend to agree with a lot of what Russell Moore has to say politically. Yeah, spiritually, yeah, you're a big fan of his. I yeah. am kind of that Russell Moore. But also his plight here in the Southern Baptist Convention is kind of mirrored by Beth Moore and some other people who have been kind of right. sidelined and have kind of removed right. themselves. Uh, and so the Southern Baptist Convention is having their big convention, their big meeting this week. It's been kind of building to it. And as that's going on or getting started or about to get started yesterday, now let me get to the story. Yesterday leaked a letter that Russell Moore wrote to the executive committee uh, of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention last year, I believe it was. That was uh, huge and a big deal. It gave it, it shed light on a lot of the backroom kind of in the dark conversations right. and right. what, quite frankly, he's had to go through and his family has had to go through over the last year. And so it's kind of stuff that everybody knew. But you read this and you're going, good Lord, like this oh, is a lot yes. darker than I ever suspected. This is a lot yeah, more political and sinister than I ever suspected. And so when I read it, I was like, gosh, this is one of those things we need to talk about. So you told me you and Kevin both read this on your date. That's interesting date material to be reading, by the way. <laughs> That's uh, what happens when two pastors go on a date. What right? did you do on your date? We snuck we snuck candy into the movies and read Russell Moore's <laughs> read letter. Russell Moore's leaked letter. So romantic. And I should uh, speak. Let me make sure I get this right. This letter was Russell Moore writing to the ERLC trustees. So not the uh, not the executive committee of the whole gotcha. Southern Baptist Convention. 
he was writing to the ERC, ERLC trustees. And so, Aubrey, before we kind of get into the minutia of the letter, very long yeah. letter, you can read it lots of different places, like at the relig- at religionnews.com. Just your thoughts as you read Russell Moore's letter to the ERLC trustees. You know, I... The things that we have long suspected or have seen, heard whispers of, seen shadows of, the sexism, the racism, um, I feel like it's just laid out pretty clearly here. And it is heartbreaking. It is devastating. I came to Christ in a Southern Baptist church. I Lots of my family members are Southern Baptist, which that's neither here nor there, except to say when your fellow brothers in Christ who are leaders, significant leaders for the gospel and look to for a lot of leadership, you see this just like darkness over it all. It's heartbreaking. I mean, it should bring all of us to our knees, lamenting for the women, lamenting for the brothers and sisters of color. And and a change has to come. I mean, you know, that's the obvious part. That's it, right? And I'm glad it got leaked. I'm sure some people feel like, oh, that was supposed to be private. This stuff has to come out because it seems like to me the Lord is doing some house cleaning. And here's what's fascinating. Of all the things in the letter that stood out to me, and I'd encourage people to go read it because it's hard. Russell Moore speaks that literally of the messages uh, and the threats him and his family have been receiving. And he's like, I'm not going to put up with this. Like, this is not okay. Not just threats from, like, crazy Twitter people. Like, Literal threats from like the hierarchy of like his own people, the denominational uh, uh, leadership structure, but uh, not physical threats, but like threats to your job, threats to what we're Mm going to do, threats to Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Here's the amazing thing. Everybody assumed that Russell Moore's problem and his tension with people had to do with uh, his outspokenness about President Trump. Right. He is very clear in this letter that while he is not a supporter of President Trump, that many of his friends and colleagues who are Trump supporters have been wonderful with him. And and he makes it very clear that his problems have not been primarily because of his uh, pushback about President Trump Mm -hmm. and this and that, but that his where he's really run into his troubles has been his desire to see decades long sexual abuse scandals be dealt with and for there to be structural changes specifically around sexual abuse while many other people in the leadership structure not only wanted to keep it quiet, but wanted to continue to hold up some of the people who were in the middle of these scandals. Right. And he said very clearly that that's where the crux of the issue has been. And that felt I can understand the political stuff like the I'm not yeah. in that camp, but I can understand it. When I read that, I was like, that feels satanic. Oh. That feels demonic. <laughs> Whereas the rest of the stuff, the political stuff felt annoying. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And it felt a lot darker and a lot. It, it, it just felt a lot more when I said like, oh, a reckoning. is." It felt a lot deeper when I read written when he was describing where he was getting the most pushback. I mean, it's just I, I feel like any woman in the church would tell you like, yeah. We've been dehumanized. Our stories of abuse have not been taken seriously. So in in some senses, the hard part is like, yeah, this is true. You know, Um, 
but it, it I'm with you, Brian. It is evil. It is demonic. Any any time we're dehumanizing anyone, like that's yeah. just literally Satan at work. Period. It's evil. And I I don't understand this. I don't I really, really don't understand the impetus to cover up sexual abuse in the church. Yeah. I yeah. I don't get what it is. I I understand that it's maybe like protecting power, but I I can't even see from another perspective how anyone justifies that being okay church leadership. That's right. And you start to see when we say there's a record, there is the Southern Baptist Convention is uh, the Southern Baptist meeting, like their convention meeting is going on, I believe, next week. And, you know, I have great respect for the J.D. Greers of the world, who's the president trying to fight. Russell Moore talks about the role J.D. Greer played in trying to fight for, you know, uh, change and reform you see ed stetzer tweeting stuff you see beth moore and russell moore being kind of pushed aside and Mm -hmm. then you're someone's going to win here something's going to win there's going to be a direction set and it's it's a as you said a hugely influential arm of christianity so we all i think it bears watching and and i'm it's saddened. It's re- I read that letter and I was sad for him, but I was mostly sad for, quote unquote, evangelicalism and going, all right, what's going to become of us? What's even the non-Southern Baptists? Yeah, this is kind of the conversation that needs to happen. We're going to put that letter up, the article up at our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, it's difficult, but I would encourage you to read it. Coming up next, I want to talk about uh, just a, a bit of a fascinating story that I don't know what to make of. The story of Ellie Kemper, uh, the actress Ellie Kemper, and the story that came out about her this week and kind of what's happened to her on Twitter. I'm interested to know what Aubrey thinks here next on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Short week, so it feels like we're like, oh, it's the weekend. I know. Oh, okay. Right? How did that happen already almost? What's going to happen next week when we have one of these, (laughs) brace yourself, five-day work weeks? But then again, hold on. Then again, you and I do a two hour radio show. So we work two hours a day and then we're pastors. So we only work on Sundays. So we really like (laughs) two part time jobs. We're basically on vacation all the time. (laughs) I mean, like we work what? Like two times five. That's 10 hours at the radio and a one hour church service. There you go. We work 11 hour weeks. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Our life is easy. It's not demanding at all. (laughs) Oh, yes. Have you ever had people like jokingly? And I know it's usually jokingly like, oh, you're you're a pastor like it's got to be nice to work do. one day a week it's got to be nice <laughs> yeah yeah are they like what do you do during the week i know, like, I know. Oh. and you're like i kind of follow me around you're like i'll <laughs> laugh with you but i really want to punch you in the face right now it's like my wife is <laughs> seething next to me at the moment like, exactly if you exactly. only knew like yes but yeah it's always that nice older lady or older oh yeah it's got to be yeah. nice to only work one day a week although i will tell you that i knew uh, I have to be very careful so you don't. Nobody can figure out who it is. Like ten or fifteen years okay. ago, I knew of a. Pa- I knew him. I knew a pastor. Uh, who, who was to- it? Yeah, exactly. He told me uh, that 
he used to pastor a church. He was a solo pastor. He would pastor this church, smaller church. So this is back 80s, 90s when he was doing this, okay? Okay, okay. For like 20, 25 years. And he preached every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. And he told me his regular rhythm was to golf three times a week. <laughs> no, come on. Come on. Are you serious? And I Good stared for him. at him like... Some self-care. Whoa! And I was like, <laughs> I really... Okay, find me that church. There we go. So, anyway. I want to work for whoever you work for, buddy. <laughs> Man, that was that worked out well. But anyway. Uh, okay, big fan of The Office. You're a big fan of The Office, too. One of these days... I love The do, Office. One of these days, we'll do a top five list where I'm sure that The Office will come back for We could probably do, like, top five scenes from The Office or something. That would be good. Oh, book that one, please. Debbie, write it down. Top write it five, down. We're telling our producer. Write it down. Characters. Top five. Did I ever tell you? Did I ever tell you that Ian and I? One of our favorite interviews we ever did was through this awesome website called Think Christian uh, that takes pop culture, movies, television. Oh all yeah, this stuff. that is a cool website. And yeah. They, so they did an article literally entitled "The The Office and the Gospel." And we had a guy on to just talk about gospel ties to the office. It that is awesome. The most fun interview we've ever done. It was so good. Uh, but one of the later characters in the office, she became uh, the um, the receptionist. After right after Pam moved, uh-huh, yes, Aaron, uh-huh. Aaron. So she was played by an actress by the name of Ellie Kemper. She fabulous yeah. in the office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also. Uh, Ellie Kemper, Ellie Kemper. I always want to put an L in there. Ellie Kemper was was best known for being uh, starring in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which was uh, amazing. Also, so she's become a very well known actress. Uh, and out of the blue, on Twitter this week, if you're on Twitter and, and, and you might have seen in the like what's trending or what's ha- topics happening right now, that mm-hmm. sidebar. Randomly, Ellie Kemper was trending, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I'll click on that. Why would Ellie Kemper be trending? And it was for a really strange story. So let me give you the background of this story. Uh, it says, thanks to social media, this was a very, this is a person who thinks this is ridiculous. Okay. Uh, Ellie Kemper will apparently now forever be considered some sort of adjunct KKK princess by stupid people for the crime of having attended a debutante ball as a teen. Mm. So the story came out. Somebody uncovered a a newspaper picture where as a 13 year old, Ellie Kemper uh, was like crowned the princess of this ball that if you dig into the the beginnings of this ball in the south. So not the one she was at, but if you dig into the the background of this ball, it has some very loose KKK ties to it. But not the one she was at, but like if you kind of unravel it. So what ended up happening online was people jumped on this and began, you know, we talk uh, about cancel culture, yeah. kind of began piling on Ellie Kemper. And by the end of the day, if you didn't do some digging, you would have thought that she was crowned at the age of 13 as the uh, princess of a KKK ball. And that, you know, the you keep going that that now speaks to who she is now. Right. Right. Uh, and as best we could tell, she has not come out and said anything. But, Aubrey, this was like the worst of the Internet, because I don't yes. want to make light at all of the KKK. Certainly I don't want to make not. light of all of certain. Su- 
Yeah. But to be honest with you, them calling her into question and doing this actually makes light of the KKK. It kind yes. of lessens yes. the severity of what they actually have done through the years. And it became everything that's bad about the Internet. This article I was just reading from from the New York Post, which takes a slanted view, uh, called it. Uh, it said it, the title was this uh, burning of Ellie Kemper shows we're living in a modern day Salem witch trial. Wow. And, uh, it was really crazy as you read about it. But the hard part is most people, if you just read the headlines, you'd go, Ellie Kemper's a terrible person. Uh, <laughs> right. She was like, a, she's a closet racist and right. needs to be canceled. And this is kind of the way the Internet works and things work this day. Where, that is everything wrong with it. What did you think as you were reading this? I mean, so I'm with you. We we never are okay with any form of KKK or racism, right. period. Yes. Period. That's not even the conversation we're having right now. It's this mob mentality. I mean, it's well, it's twofold, right? It is. I, I, this is the worst part of cancel culture. She's 13 years old. She enters a debutante ball or whatever it was. Can any of us... <laughs> At 13, like, remember why we did the things we did? I, so I think that's what I don't like about cancel culture. Like, I don't want to be canceled for things I did when I was 13 years old. Right. You know, like, right. let's assume people have grown. Let's assume times have changed. Let's. Ass- and again, that's not there should be consequences for racism, period. OK, I, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I, I think this is this is just bad. Like, and again, right. we talk about. You can cancel subjects. You can deplatform people. This is so different than just canceling a person, mob mentality, piling on a person. If right now Ellie Kemper's sitting there saying, "Yes, I'm part of the KKK. Yes, I'm," you know, if <laughs> yes, she's right now, issues. she's saying racist yes. things. Like that's not okay. Or even if in recent history, but she was a young teenage girl. At a debutante ball, people are making weird connections. I, I just, I don't yes. like it. I don't like it. And some people, some of you might think you guys are overblowing it. Let me read one of the headlines to what was a major uh, website. I won't give it, but a major website says their uh, headline was, Oh, great. Ellie Kemper is yet another rich white celebrity with a racist past. Mm-hmm. And like, she's 41 years old. She was 13 years old yeah. at the time. Uh, and and people are just diving in and and. Again, this is going to come and go like the next one comes. Yeah, in. probably not for Ellie Kemper. She's going to have to deal with this at yeah, some point. Yeah, but it's going to come and go. But what I want people to be to understand is the dangers. And we do this in Christendom too. the dangers of I read this one thing on the mm-hmm. Internet, this gotcha piece. Yeah. Now I'm going to retweet it. I'm going to speak up on this. And it becomes, quite frankly, like like the New York Post talked about in some weird way, like the Salem Witch totally. Trial, where like. You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like, if well, Ellie Kemper I, I comes out right like now. You're, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. No, go, go right ahead. Well, I was going right to say, I, I think, like, if you're going to make a statement, speak out against racism. Speak out against the KKK. Speak out against unjust yep. social structures that allow racism to happen. Don't take this. We, I, I agree that it undermines the actual work of the KKK. Like, if you're moved by this, if you're, like, shocked by this, then speak out and say the KKK is wrong. Speak out and say racism is wrong. But yes. we don't have to pull this, like, weird story to make racism true. Like, racism is real, so let's, like, talk about the real issues. And I just, as we close this out, I just feel like there's a uh, there's part of the internet 
specifically, whose entire goal in life is to dig up stuff on celebrities past in order to cancel them. Because now I get clickbait, I get names, I get this. And someone went, look at this picture of Ellie Kemper. And you're like, what are we doing? Like, what exactly? And I think it makes the point that you made. It actually trivializes actual conversations that need to happen about the KKK and about our past and other things. Because people go, well, if all we're worried about is a debutante ball, what are we really Mm -hmm. talking about here? And that becomes painful. Anyway, coming up next, uh, I love this tweet that you uh, showed us, uh, Aubrey. We're going to read a tweet that gets at this, that loving people can be hard. And how do we love people when it's difficult to love them? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about loving people when it's difficult. And then we have a really important conversation with author Jamar Tisby. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my fabulous co-host with a new haircut. Thank you. Brian Fromm. This is really fun. Brian, where'd you get that haircut? I got that haircut last night. Do you know why I got a haircut? Look at that. Why did you get a haircut? No, I don't. You're preaching Sunday. I am, uh, No, I'm not preaching this Sunday, actually, but that wouldn't have oh, been okay. reason. There is, there is well, one, Kevin gets haircuts for preaching, so let's hear your there reason. There is one reason and one reason only. Because okay. my uh, my beautiful wife told me to. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good so reason. She and looks what at a faithful me, wife you have. She looks at me and it usually starts somewhat passive. It will usually start with, are you going to get a haircut soon? And I'll be like, that's probably the clock is now ticking. And then if I don't soon, it will turn into you need to get a haircut. And then it will turn into I made you an appointment for a haircut. And so we got to that part. And that appointment was last night. So, yes, thank you very much. I always enjoy a haircut when I get it. But it is always spurred by my bride telling me it's time. So haircut sponsored by Carrie from. Right. Wow, I that is 100 percent right. Well, uh, not speaking of haircuts, but thinking of ways we love people, I actually wanted to talk to you, Brian, about a tweet I saw uh, by Jackie Hill Perry. She's a preacher. She and her husband are actually spoken word poet. She's a really powerful ministry. If you don't know Jackie Hill Perry, um, she was actually part of the same sex community, but came to Christ and just really decided, listen, the God's my encounter with God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the most important thing to me. And so she is married to a man and is uh, really making an intentional decision not to live a homosexual lifestyle and faithfully calling people to identity in Christ. So she got a really powerful, powerful testimony. Uh, but she tweeted something that I thought was really funny because it's about loving people when it's hard to love people. Here's what she said on Twitter. To be honest, I really don't like people. <laughs> But Jesus told me that I'm supposed to love them. Pray for me because the whole love thing is a struggle. (laughs) I love that because I thought it was so real, right? So, Brian, what do you think about that? We've all been there. Sometimes we're there often. Uh, You know, we often talk introvert, extrovert, extrovert. No, it doesn't matter what you are. There are times when loving individual people, but also loving 
all people is just really hard because yeah. uh, it could be what's going on around you in the world. It could just be what's going on in your own life. But sometimes people are hard. Like we're pastors and we will often say things as a, I will say something as a pastor often like, man, being a pastor would be really easy if it weren't for people. <laughs> like, <it's> just, <laughs> right, right. People are difficult and we're part of that, right? Like I can be difficult for other yes. people to love me. But yeah, sometimes. Sometimes the call to love our spouses, our children, our parishioners, our neighbors, whatever else it might be. Sometimes it's really easy. It's not a chore to love them right now. And sometimes it's a choice. Like I've got to love Jesus taught me. Uh, So I totally, totally resonate with what she said. I know. I think a lot of people related to this. There's an author I follow who says something like, I love people, just not in person. And I'm like, yes, I totally relate to that. That's good. Well, Jackie Hill Perry offers um, some solutions to how we can live empowered by God, even when we don't feel like it related to loving people. So I wanted to play this little audio clip for our listeners. There is no way that you have come in contact with the lavish grace of God and that you can then turn your back on him. To me, that says you don't actually know him. Mm. You, wow. <laughs> mm. To know him and to know his love and to know his grace and to know his mercy means that I am desperate to actually please please him as best I can. Mm. And so I think what Jude is uh, attacking in his context is so much similar to what we're dealing with now. What Jesus said to the lady in adultery. Yeah. Where are your accusers? Yeah. Okay, so no one's accusing you anymore. Go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. Grace doesn't just eliminate the penalty of sin, Mm -hmm. right? Because she should have been stoned. Mm -hmm. The law says Mm -hmm. that all sin deserves death. So what the Pharisees were saying was actually a right understanding of what her penalty should be. But when he says go and sin no more, he not only removes the penalty, but he empowers her to actually not walk in the same way, right? And so we see that grace removes penalty, and empowers you to do the impossible, which is to live holy. Okay, so that's Jackie talking about how, listen, if you have come in contact with the lavish grace of God, that empowers us to do the impossible. Now, she's talking about living a holy life there, but I do think we can take that into this conversation about loving people, because ultimately it's God's grace that empowers us to love. Okay, so here's my next question. I'm just going to keep putting you on the spot, Brian. I'm I'm Um, for it. (laughs) If, okay, so... Think of that person in your life that's hard to love. Say their name out loud right now. Just kidding. Aubrey Sampson. <laughs> <laughs> you set um, yourself up there. I did. But I'm bump. Um, yep. What do you do? Or like if someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I'm really struggling with this family member. They're toxic. They're making me crazy. How do I love them? How, what advice do you give yourself or to the people you lead about this issue? Yeah, let's start by being pastoral about this a little bit, being theological. Uh, in our church right now, we're going through the uh, through the book of Galatians. And I told you I'm not preaching, but Scott, our other pastor, is preaching this week on the fruits of the Spirit. Now, nice. love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's right. the first one in the list. So what does that mean? Like, how, Let's unpack that a little bit. It, the being that it's a fruit means that that's not something that ultimately I'm conjuring up, right? Mm. that I'm trying harder to do. Uh, what do we learn in Scripture that uh, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and that as I'm connected to the vine, uh, fruit is is the byproduct that comes. Like, it's not about necessarily being more loving. That's good. Uh, it's about being connected to the vine. And so th- that's where the question becomes, like, how am I – is my is my lack of ability to be loving, is that actually a sign of what's going on in my relationship with Jesus? I think that's worth asking. Now, very practically – how do I love unlovable people? Yeah. Uh, 
I think we do need to remind people about boundaries. Mm, like if somebody has hurt me, uh, it, the loving thing for me to do is not always, hey, don't worry about it. Let's go hang out like that. Sometimes we get forgiveness and love wrong in that way. Like, oh, it just means erasing everything. No, that's not what it means. Sometimes I can love somebody and still keep them out of my life. Right. But with that said, I think it's probably baby steps. Like, what's a loving thing you can do for that person uh, as opposed to, I love that person. Uh, they're probably not going to get there. Like, what's a step I can take uh, that shows grace and shows love? Uh, and and then maybe, you know, I, I think it's kind of habit forming. The more we do, the more we do. It doesn't mean that everybody in your church you have to hang out with and be best friends with. Right. It doesn't mean that that neighbor that bothers you down the street, you have to go and have them. Like there, there's yeah. th- that's not what love means. Yeah. But. Uh, I do think we're called to reflect the love of Christ mm. into other people's lives. How would you answer that, I, you know, Pastor? I, right, Pastor Sampson. I I think that's really a really good point you make that love is not an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Love, mm-hmm. as we know, has been displayed by Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for us. And so, if we can remember that love is an action then we can pray that the Lord would give us his spirit to love in action, right? And give us creativity when it comes to like, okay, that one person that makes me crazy, God, how can I show them an act of love today? Not how can I love them and feel wonderful about them and think that they're amazing, but give me creativity to honor them in an act of love. And it might be like you're ordering groceries for that person today. You're sending Mm -hmm. a note in the mail. You're writing an encouraging text. Like you can do loving things um, without always having to feel wonderful about it. And I do sometimes think that feeling of compassion follows, which is a beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. Right. And then, like you said, Brian, like, we just got to pray, right? Lord, yes. I am frail. I am, I am sinful. I don't love the way you love. You know that about me. You love me anyway. And so That's help good. me to reflect your grace and your mercy to this person. And, and help me remember that you loved me when I was ugly and a sinner and walking away from you. Help me to That's reflect right. that to other people. So I thought that was an important I mean, I, thing for us to talk about. Go ahead, yeah. Brian. I just, I'll close it by saying, I think of my own marriage sometimes, there you right? Go. Like I love my wife, yeah. but I don't always feel loving. And sometimes the action precedes the feeling and the feeling follows. Other times the action is a result of the feeling, mm-hmm. but you can't just be like, I don't feel it. So I'm, I'm going to be a jerk. For her today. <laughs> right, gonna, right. Like, that's not the way it works. And so sometimes it's like you said, it's just a choice uh, to think a certain way and act a certain way, whether it be your spouse or that coworker that you just can't really stand. No, that's not uh, that was not a passive. I hope it wasn't because right I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that, Brian. Or just that neighbor or whatever else it might be. Well, thanks for that. We thought that was a really important conversation to talk about. Loving difficult people. And up next, we're really excited because author Jamar Tisby is going to join us. We're going to talk about some of his books, but we're also going to talk about the new edition of a book by William Pinnell called The Coming Race Wars, A Cry for Justice from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And we're excited to be joined by Jamar Tisby. Uh, Jamar is the Assistant Director of Narrative and Advocacy for the Center for Anti-Racist Research. Also the founder of The Witness Incorporated, co-host of Pass the Mic podcast, author of multiple books that we're going to talk about. But uh, Jamar, that's a lot. But most of all, thanks so much for joining us today, bud. 
It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Hey, before we dive into all that we want to talk to you about, just so our audience can get to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself? Let them know who you are. Yeah, we were talking offline. I'm a 90s kid. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> I grew up in the Chicagoland area, not actually in the city, but in the area during the Bulls' six-peat. And so nice. there's no conversation about the goat in basketball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Really, it's Michael Jordan. No shade to anyone else, but they're, you're, <laughs> you're just right. not going to be able to convince me otherwise. So um, after that, I went to the University of Notre Dame and uh, graduated and joined Teach for America. And that's how I got down to the Deep South, uh, the Mississippi Delta. And I'm actually on the Arkansas side. That's where I've been most of my adult life, uh, except for several years in Jackson, Mississippi, while I was getting my master's in divinity. And um, I try never to set up the South as too terribly different from the rest of the country, especially when it comes to race. One of the things I will say is a little bit different is uh, the geography of the mm -hmm. place. Uh, the physicality of the place. And so my commute uh, to the University of Mississippi, where I'm getting my Ph.D. in history, is literally through cotton fields. And so wow. you, you can't drive past that and not think of sharecroppers mm -hmm. and, of course, before that, enslaved people. And that kind of physical history, um, this is the theater of most of the battles in the Civil War, uh, where most of the uh, most well-known events of the Civil Rights Movement took place. Yeah. When you're embedded in that, immersed in that mm. geographical environment, it does something to you. It changes you. It gets in you. And to me, it's been a big part of my story. That is so powerful, Jamar. We want to talk to you more about your story and your books, but we also want to talk about um, the re-release of The Coming Race Wars, A Cry for Justice from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter by the one and only William Pinnell, which you wrote the foreword for, which is really exciting. Can you talk to us a little bit about why this book matters now and um, things that have changed from the first edition to this expanded edition? The subtitle says a lot from the civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter. And um, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of continuity over the past 60 years. So oftentimes the biggest sort of racial justice uprisings are in response to instances of anti-black police brutality. Uh, we see this historically in terms of the uprisings in the 1960s. We saw this with the formation of the Black Panther Party, which was the Black Panther Party for self-defense self-defense against the brutalization of police yeah. in black communities and uh, to take folks back again to the 1990s uh, Rodney King this was one of the first times that we saw video of police brutality enacted against a black person it was this grainy camcorder video, but it showed dozens of police officers by the end of it gathered around Rodney King, uh, four officers in particular, beating him more than 50 times they struck him. Mm. And then in the court case, which was moved from, from uh, L.A., which had a more diverse, racially and ethnically diverse population, to uh, a nearby county, which was an all-white one, mainly white. And uh, it, we saw all of the officers get acquitted. And that's what led to this, this, this huge uprising in Los Angeles. And yes, how does it connect now? Well... The racial justice uprisings in 2020, which were by the numbers the biggest in U.S. history, mm -hmm. uh, those were spurred 
largely by instances of anti-black police brutality or similarly vigilantism, and especially um, the the killing of George Floyd, which, again, was captured on camera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also wrote the book How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice. That came out back in January. And uh, I was watching a video on your Twitter account kind of about your book, and, and you, you made a fascinating statement, something to the effect, if I get it wrong a little bit here, that you regularly get asked the question by people, what can I do? What can I do? What does that question even say to you about what's going on culturally? And then also, how do you answer that question? That question says two things. Number one, it says the person asking realizes that racism isn't just a problem of the past, uh, whether the 1990s or the 1960s. It's a a problem in the present as well. The other thing that question says is that the person asking wants to be part of the solution. And so um, as regularly as I get that question, it's actually a hopeful question to me. And how I respond, actually, I responded in a way I don't think was very satisfying for a very long time. So usually I would present or give a talk, and then there's the Q&A portion, and that's where this question, what do I do, comes up. And oftentimes I would just give this sort of scattershot of answers, really what was what was on my mind at the moment. Um, but over time, I just started developing something that I think is more helpful, and it's called the ARC of Racial Justice. And that's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Awareness, Relationships, mm-hmm. Commitment. And it's a framework, I think, that can help us constantly interrogate and improve our racial justice practices. And so building your awareness, is that's the knowledge, the data, the information, listening to radio shows, watching television documentaries, uh, reading the books. Relationships, of course, I believe all reconciliation is relational, that if we want to get to justice, we've got to go through people, and we've also got to be intentional about the kind of relationships that we're cultivating, making sure that we're in contact with people from lots of different backgrounds and groups. And then lastly is the commitment aspect, which is oftentimes where Christians fall short, particularly white Christians fall short, is the fact that racism works not just on an interpersonal level, but an institutional level. That it's not just about attitudes, it's about policies and laws, and we have to work on a social level to change some of these practices. That's so good. Jamar, for the critics out there, and I'm sure you've heard them who say, but this, you're not preaching the gospel. You're preaching something else. This is social justice or this, you know, for folks who don't see that these actually are the gospel, right? That they go hand in hand. What is sort of your posture? What do you say in situations like that? First, I, I, I like to reframe the question. I mean, I don't want to simply accept the terms that they are establishing for the conversation, because what we have to understand is what's underneath this is a deflection. And so if we can turn the attention sort of back to the person asking the question, well, what do you think we should do, right? And, and oftentimes you're going to get a answer that Martin Luther King called pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities. Well, just preach the gospel, tell everybody that they're equal, treat folks as individuals. Okay, that's great. Well, what about the fact that uh, black people make up 13% of the overall population, but over 40% of the prison population? What's Mm -hmm. your explanation for that? And then they'll say, well, they just commit more crimes or something like that, which is actually racist because you're saying that a group of people, because of their skin color, because of their ethnicity, is actually more prone to criminality when the answer is actually these communities are being over-policed. 
because of negative perceptions, yeah. because of persons making laws and making deliberate choices. So I try to turn it back to the questioner to try to uncover, not in a malicious way, but try to uncover some of their assumptions. Because the fact of the matter is you can stack facts from floor to ceiling for folks and it won't change their minds because there's something more going on than an intellectual kind of persuasive argument. There's a commitment. There's an investment on their part into believing what they believe about race and resisting what you're saying about race. So how do we get to that is the question that I try to ponder. That's great. Again, Jamar Tisby, Assistant Director of Narrative and Advocacy for the Center for Anti-Racist Research, also the founder of The Witness, Inc., co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast and the author of The Color of Compromise and also How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice. Earlier in the show, uh, Aubrey and I talked about this kind of huge blow up of this Russell Moore story and this leaked letter of Russell Moore. And you had a fascinating tweet in response to it. You said this, uh, if a well-connected, influential white man can, uh, had to go through all this, you can imagine what black and brown folks, especially women in these spaces, face. The worst of racism, sexism and intimidation is usually hidden, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Such a powerful tweet. Can you mm-hmm. just unpack that a little bit? Why you wanted to write that and just what's at the heart of that? Whenever I see these stories about, let's say, white evangelicals, um, my mind immediately goes to black Christians, uh, black women in particular, and what they have had to experience and endure. So a lot of times, especially in media, the attention is focused on the white people. Yeah, They're the majority. Our society is sort of centered around that. But the stories that often go untold are the stories of black people and other people of color who have experienced the same things with the volume turned up on their experiences, but turned down on the attention that they get. Mm. So for every Russell Moore, there are countless black and brown folks, particularly women, who've gone through the same thing. And guess what? They aren't as well connected. They aren't as influential. They don't have a nice position at Christianity today to land at or a a, a pastor in residence at a large church to land at. And so we're left just being excluded because we've raised our voice about something like racial justice or about sexism and abuse in the church. And for that, we get gaslit, we get trolled on social media, we get uh, prevented from influential positions in churches and Christian nonprofits or outright dismissed. And I've got story after story If you want to hear some of those, go to our podcast, Pass the Mic, in the Leave Loud campaign. You can even uh, search that hashtag, Leave Loud. And these are some of the stories from black Christians in particular about the racism we've experienced in predominantly white Christian spaces. Leave Loud. We say that again, Leave Loud. It's just Leave Loud, a hashtag, and then we've done some podcast episodes on it. Um, Jamar, can you tell us a little bit about your work at The Witness? Absolutely. So The Witness was founded sort of on this idea of if they will not make space at their tables, you need to build your own table. Mm. So The Witness is our way as black Christians of building our own table. I was tired of 
elbowing for room at predominantly white Christian websites, conferences, outlets, you name it. We wanted to be able to tell our stories as black people and as black Christians in a way that we thought was honest and accurate. And we didn't want it to only come when there was some big racial event or conversation or or issue. We wanted to be able to talk about it on a regular basis because that's how we live it. Is on a regular basis, and not just racial issues, any issues uh, around culture or music or our personal experiences from our own perspectives. And so The Witness now has grown to two different divisions. Uh, the Black Christian Collective is what most people will be familiar with. That is our content-producing uh, side, and we do blog articles and videos, and we try to tell the story of the expansive black experience. Mm. The other division is brand new, and it's called the Witness Foundation, and I'm so thrilled. As we record this, we're, we're just days away, really, from announcing our first cohort of Witness Fellows. This is a group of five black Christian leaders who we are going to fund to the tune of $50,000 apiece each for two years. So a total of a $100,000 investment coupled with programming and training and mentoring to help uh, the next generation of what we believe are uh, civil rights leaders of our day. Oh, that's powerful. Uh, Jamar, I'm sure you get this question a lot. In fact, we talked about it a little bit earlier when people ask you, what should I do? What can I do? Um, Let me personalize a little more. What do you say when white pastors ask you that question? What do you say to them when they say, and A, does that question encourage you? And B, what do you say to white pastors when they go, what would you tell us? What would you encourage us to do? Well, first, start with the vision. I think it can be articulated in all kinds of ways. But but one way to think about this in terms of like, what are we moving toward? What are we going to is what I desire is a world where your race would not determine so much of your important life outcomes. A world where race does not determine so many of your important life outcomes from health to wealth to lifespan to education attainment. All of those kinds of things are unfortunately still very predictable by race. Mm. And so if that's the goal, then the question is, what do we do? Number one, do something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and most folks who, who probably listen to your show have done some things, but it's probably heavy on the awareness aspect. So mm-hmm. one of the things I would do is go through and do sort of a self audit. Um, in terms of my racial justice practices, how am I building awareness intentionally? Mm-hmm. How am I building relationships, especially across racial and ethnic lines? And then how am I building my commitment to changing laws, policies, and practices, not even just at the political level, but, but maybe in my organization or institution or church? Some low-hanging fruit on that commitment side. I think there are two really big issues that, number one, you just need to inform yourself about, and number two, figure out how to get involved. The first is anti-black police brutality. Mm -hmm. We talked about that in the first segment. Mm -hmm. And then number two is protecting voting rights. They are under threat like I have never seen in my lifetime. And uh, we are way beyond uh, past time to act. We, we are out of time and we have to take decisive action right now. Uh, the other thing you can do is to do your um, racial autobiography. Hmm. Sit down. I wouldn't even think about your whole life. That's a little bit intimidating. Think about a season <laughs> of life. 
college, high school, uh, a job, maybe early childhood. What were your earliest memories of race? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's around the Rodney King uh, uh, uprisings. How did your family talk about it? Did they talk about it? Did your church talk about it? And I would encourage you to actually sit down and write it down because building our awareness is oftentimes beginning with building our awareness of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So good. Such a good word, Jamar. Well, we don't want to um, you miss another opportunity to talk about Bill Pinnell's new book that you wrote, The Ford for the Coming Race Wars. Now, so he's a mentor of yours. That's what I'm curious about. Tell, tell us about the connection and why you felt like it was, I want to write this forward. Oh, Bill Pinnell is a living legend, although he's in his 90s and um, wow. you know, it's with sorrow, right? Like mm-hmm. our, our sort of last generation of folks who really lived through the civil rights movement are passing away from us. But we're so thankful that folks like Bill Pinnell have left us his words. Now, Bill Pinnell was the first uh, black professor at, at Fuller Theological Seminary. The preaching center there is named after him. He's been there for 40 years. Awesome. Uh, he was the right hand man of a guy named Tom Skinner, who was the foremost black evangelical uh, uh, black evangelist in Mm -hmm. the late 1960s and early 1970s. He's just a wealth of knowledge. And beyond that, a genuinely good person. He's witty. He's smart. He's deeply faithful and has remained committed to the church and to bringing people together over decades of his life. So it was just my honor. If I never wrote another word, I would be satisfied because I got to be in Bill Pinnell's book. But this book, The Coming Race Wars, is just so timely. Unfortunately, 30 years after its original publication, it's still so timely because it's talking um, a lot to the white evangelical church who think that racism is a problem of the past or it's not as urgent an issue as it is. And so he's given an insider's perspective about what's going on, particularly with black men and why we should care and how we should care well when it comes to unity in the church and justice in society. Again, that book uh, by Bill Pinnell that Jamar wrote the introduction for is called The Coming Race Wars, A Cry for Justice from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter. We'd encourage you to go get that book uh, and also go get Jamar's book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards uh, Racial Justice. Uh, You can follow uh, Jamar at his website, jamartisby.com, and also on Twitter at jamartisby. He's a great follow. Jamar, this was such our pleasure. Thanks so much for your generosity of time and joining us today. I would love to do it again. Keep me in mind. We will definitely take you up on that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by Brian Fromm. And uh, we're about to end our show for today. I can't believe Thursday has come and gone. Rolling along. Closer to the weekend. Unbelievable. Well, we wanted to end today's show with some encouragement for anyone who might feel burnt out, specifically for leaders, but not just for leaders. Anyone who is feeling weary of running the race and found this post by Christine Kane, who's a friend of mine. She's a fiery preacher, evangelist woman. She runs an anti-trafficking organization. And uh, Brian, if you will, would you go ahead and read the post that she posted? Yeah, I think it's a really timely one. She said, I had several lengthy conversations today with incredibly anointed, gifted, faithful, humble servants of God on the verge of giving up. 
The enemy has been having a field day, making them feel unseen, disposable, and expendable. As a mother slash older sister in the faith, I am thoroughly ticked off with the devil. I want to remind each and every one of you that you matter. Your calling matters. Your purpose matters. Your assignment matters. Don't quit. Don't settle. Don't give in to fear, doubt, discouragement, despair, or disappointment. You are created on purpose for a purpose. Your God will strengthen, sustain, and protect you. I know it's hard, she writes. I know it's scary. I know it's painful. I also know that I know that I know to the very marrow of my bones, our God is faithful. Don't throw away your confidence for it will have a great reward. I love you. And I'm cheering you on. That is your friend, Christine Kane. I mean, I almost feel like we don't need to say anything else. Like, we can just finish the show after that. That's right. But, Brian, what do you think about that? You're in ministry. It's been a weary year. I know you know a lot of folks that are walking away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just what did that speak to you? Yeah, I think that uh, that pointing to the future, that God's got a purpose for you. God is still at work. You're right for pastors, for everybody. But you and I, we live in the pastor world. It's been an incredibly difficult year. And in some ways, that's not over because now as things get back to normal, now you kind of see the wreckage, like who's around. And, And so I do think this discouragement is not coming to an end. Uh, at least for pastors, but for other leaders as well. And so her reminder that it's not about necessarily the results. Are are there less Mm. people in your church? Probably. Are there, are there people still complaining about masks or no mat? Yeah, probably. But, um, but be reminded that God called you, that you have a purpose and that the most important thing of her post is that God's faithful. God is going to continue what he started. And I don't even know that that means that even if you get out of ministry, it's still remembering that God's faithful and has a purpose for your life. Like this isn't about the job. There you uh, go. But it's about who God is. God, God didn't change during COVID and right. the mission didn't change. And I think Christine Kane, as she always does, does, does a phenomenal job to remind us of that. Yeah, that's so good. Actually, I wanted to play a little bit of an audio of her kind of just challenging us with what you just said, Brian, that God has not changed. So let's go ahead and listen to that. God has not changed his purpose for our lives just because our circumstances have changed and just because our plans may have changed. A lot of us are dealing with disappointment, disillusionment and discouragement. We're like, God, I was on track with my purpose. I'm not going to believe you again because look what just happened. And I just stopped midstream. And the enemy would love to put a spirit of fear over you so that you pull back from the purpose of God. Stop believing God and stop pressing in. Just because our plans have changed does not mean God's purpose has changed. Just because our circumstances have changed does not mean that God's purpose has changed. God is for you. God still has a plan and a purpose and a destiny and a future. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. If he said it, he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it, but if he said it, he's going to do it. Because our God is faithful. So what we have to do is continue to have a sense of expectancy. So anyway, that's Chris, again, just sort of repeating what she said here in the post that you read, challenging us to keep going, keep running our race, not give up ultimately because God is faithful. Even when I think we feel unfaithful, right? it's right. good to remember that God is faithful. Brian, you said something that struck me. You said even if you aren't, like, it's not about the job. 
So even if your job has changed, we know a lot of pastors or even a lot of ministry folks who have changed positions. Some have left church leadership. Or, again, if you're not a pastor, maybe you've changed jobs throughout this season. Right, Talk to right. me about what you meant by that. Like, like um, even if you've left, how are you still being faithful? Yeah, because I think that especially for vocational ministers like ourselves, uh so much of our calling and our purpose and our mission in life is tied into my role as a pastor. Mm. But there's all sorts of reasons people leave their churches or the pastorate altogether that aren't bad. Now, I would say if you're leaving because you're like, I can't handle people. I don't even know if God is still at work. I don't I think you've got to work that through. Right. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. think here I'll put it this way. Quitting your church job is not going to solve those questions mm, and those issues. And yeah. so I'd be careful to think so. But pastors leave the ministry for all sorts of reasons. That doesn't mean that you've left God or that yeah. he's no longer calling you. You no longer have a purpose. I know people who used to be pastors who are now doing other things who are seeing more fruit in their life now than That's they were so before. That's so true, right? And so I don't think her call is like, stay in. Uh, we want pastors to stay, but I don't think that's the ultimate call. Mm-hmm. I think the ultimate call here is God's still at work. Remain faithful. Uh, God is God is faithful. Keep going because yeah. God hasn't changed. And so I'm not trying to encourage pastors to leave, but I think <laughs> this isn't about this isn't about staying in the job as much as it's staying running the race, the long obedience in the same direction, That's remembering good. that God is still at work. So yeah. how do you how do you guard from discouragement or kind of work this through? Oh man, I mean it you know, discouragement is real for all of us who are trying to follow Jesus. I think burnout is real for all of us who are trying to live like on mission, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if there are seasons where you're not seeing fruit or especially seasons like COVID. And I mean, there's no season like COVID. So that's a little unfair to say. But when, you know, it just has been a long, long season of discouragement. And I think for me, I just have to go back to something that we said earlier in the show, abiding in Christ. That's right. Am I being filled up by my creator and the lover of my soul, my savior, my king? Or am I kind of doing that slow drift away from God? Because at the end of the day, I feel like Mm -hmm. it is that practiced connection with Jesus, that intentional, like indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, give me what I need today to serve you. That makes all the difference. And also being in Christian community, like it's so important Mm -hmm. to be with other Christians where you can say, man, I am struggling right now. Mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. some encouragement right now. Right. And just to have those cheerleaders kind of say, okay, you can borrow my faith right now. Cause I'm feeling good. Me and God are doing well, you know? Yeah. And, and so yeah. just having each other, having Christian community, running the race. Like you said, That's I feel good. like at the end of the day, that matters so much. Keep going, finish strong, run the race towards Jesus. And you will see blessing. You will see goodness because of that. Correct. You'll see. Fruit. Yeah, You'll see that's fruit. right. Well, anyway, we hope that encourages oh. you if you're feeling lonely today. And we're so grateful that you've joined us again for another day on The Common Good. Be sure to come back tomorrow, Friday. Finally, Friday. Uh, it's uh, Dunkin' Donuts, free donut day tomorrow. What? It's like Christmas for me. What? Yes. This tomorrow, is mind-blowing. So Brian's going to come I in know. with donuts for everyone, I'm assuming. I will have a donut, yes. Okay, well, I I hope I have a donut, too, from you, Brian. No, free donuts tomorrow from Dunkin' Donuts. That's amazing. Join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6, with or without a donut. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.